It is a library of 66 books. Some have suggested it might be better called an anthology. It contains some 1,089 chapters and well over 30,000 verses. But far more than just some facts about its length or the numbers that it contains, it is the very mind of God to us. Some have suggested we should say it is the mind of God on paper, and that might be a decent way of considering it. We call it by an English translation, or really transliteration, of a Greek word, biblios, Bible. The word, by the way, just simply means book. Many years ago, Solomon wrote words that every student has either out loud or in their minds, amen, at some point in their life. When he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 12, that of the making of many books, there is no end. If Solomon said that all the way back then, how much more true is it now with printing presses and computers churning out books constantly? While libraries and bookstores and e-readers are just continually filled, continually show us books, there is one book that has stood the test of time, There is one book that has touched more lives than any other, and unquestionably, that one book, that one volume, is the Bible. Through language differences, through cultural changes, through technological advances, it is the one book that has stood, if you please, as the touchstone of learning. It is the one book that has changed more lives than anything else ever has. I think each one of us in this room knows that. I think each one of us has that in our mind. We know that the Bible is important. We know the Bible is vital. But it is so easy to sort of discount the Bible, whether we intentionally do so or not. And I don't think any of us would intentionally. But sometimes we can even unintentionally. But in our world, certainly, It is easy to discount the Bible. Maybe it's because it is so common. After all, we have Bibles all over the place. Many of you own many copies. Some of you read the Bible on your phone every day and have several apps or several different things where you can read different versions of the Bible. Some of you have the Bible in paper form and on a computer screen. All throughout the day, we have the Bible in front of us. And sometimes familiarity can can make it just seem so common that we begin to lose true respect for the Bible. Maybe it's because we live in a time in our society where we don't really like rules. And certainly the Bible contains many rules that God has required and demanded of us. Maybe it's simply because we live in a time where the Bible is seen as countercultural, or even worse, as dated, in fact, out of date. But for whatever reason, the Bible is so often put at best in many lives as, as a secondary or a second place consideration. We can think of the Bible and oftentimes as just one of the things that is authoritative or can hold some level of authority. And while other things certainly are helpful at times, it is too easy for us at times to filter the Bible through other things instead of filtering all other things through the Bible. Tonight what I want us to do is take sort of a survey of some things found in Scripture that the Bible speaks to as to things that could, if we let them, take the place, the primary place of authority from the Bible in our lives. But of course, the Bible must, must hold and maintain that primary place. Anything could take its place. We can make a list many, many items long. But I want to share several things tonight 
that the Bible warns us about, either explicitly or implicitly, that could take the Bible's place if we so allowed it. And I hope that in doing so, we really will see that nothing, nothing can take the place of the Bible. Number one, what could take the place of the Bible, if we're not careful, are experiences. Sometimes we have this, this thought, we even hear it said, experience is the best teacher. And there is no doubt that we learn from our experiences. There's no doubt about that. And we use, if we use experiences in the right way, we gain wisdom. Sometimes that wisdom that we gain comes from good experiences, and sometimes that wisdom we gain comes from bad experiences and learning from them. But experience by itself is not a replacement for the Word of God. And one reason is what we just implied, and that is because sometimes we must go through bad things, even sinful things, in order to gain wisdom, while the Bible never would direct us in that path. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, Solomon very famously wrote, There is a way that seems right to, some translations say a man, some translations just simply say man or mankind. But then he said, but the end of that way is the way of death. Again, that's Proverbs 14 and verse 12. To put that in our line of thinking tonight, I can experience everything in this life, but any of those or all of those experiences will never replace the wisdom and the direction that God's Word alone can give in my life. Instead, experiences need to be filtered through the lens, if you please, coupled with the Word of God. And what I mean is this, When we gain an experience, we need to run what we learn from that experience through the filter of the Word of God. Am I gaining wisdom that is truly helping me to grow closer to the Lord and further away from a sinful walk, or am I simply just gaining another experience? Those who are learning to be more godly through their experiences are a blessing in this life because they are seeing that God's Word is the filter through which we must place what we learn from experiences. Experiences are good so long as they are uh, righteous experiences, but experience alone cannot replace the Word of God. In the second place, human reasoning cannot replace the Word of God. Maybe the most famous book in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah is found in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, where the prophet said, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. I like the way that that Jeremiah said that. It's not in himself. That little picture of it being in a person, in us, means that we're dealing with our thinking. We're dealing with our reasoning, our will. We're dealing with that inward part of ourself. What Jeremiah was basically saying was this, God, I understand that man cannot figure out everything on his own. And oh, how that goes against the way our world wants us to think. Our world tells us to to figure everything out on your own, to chart your own path, to draw your own way. Now, I'm not taking away from human intelligence. I'm thankful for it. We have made as, as humans so many advances throughout the years that it's remarkable, especially in the last several decades. But we need to remember that even the intellect that has allowed us to make those advances is not our own. God has given us even that ability to think and to remember and to reason through things and to pass that information along to future generations. God has placed within us as well the desire to, for lack of a better way of putting it, to make life better or easier. But Jeremiah was not just talking about walking through this life 
and ending up with smartphones and tablet computers. He was talking about a far more important path we are to walk. We need to remember that none of us could ever figure out a way out of our deepest dilemma, the dilemma of sin, unless it was with God's help and through God's direction, I should say, really. God alone has revealed to us through Scripture alone what He both expects of us and what He demands of us in order to remove ourselves or let Him remove us from our worst problem, the problem of sin. There are too many people in our world who, whether they say so or not, basically decide that they know better than God what God desires. And so they just do whatever they want and figure that God's going to have to go along for the ride. That he'll, he'll be pleased because I'm pleased with this and I know a way out. I know how to do this. That's human reasoning. And it is not pleasing to our God. It is not in us to direct our own steps and still be pleasing to the God of heaven. Instead, we must always make certain that we are faithfully following exactly what God has Himself revealed to us that He desires and yes, that He demands, and then walk that path and that path alone. Human reasoning cannot replace the Word of God. Number three, the rule of majority cannot replace the Word of God. That sounds almost un-American, doesn't it? That sounds almost wrong to say. Whatever the most people want, that's just what we'll do. That's what we'll go along with. And that might work in some settings, but it doesn't work in the matter of morality. I certainly wish it did. I certainly wish the majority of people were truly following exactly what the Scriptures reveal to us, especially when we like to consider ourselves as a Christian nation. But following the pure and true way of Scripture is just simply not what the majority of people continually do. As Jesus was drawing near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He said to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And then He reversed that by saying, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Some translations have difficult that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those verses are found in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. When I read those words, I can almost hear the heart of Jesus breaking as He taught that the majority of people are going to be lost. Because He does not want that to be true. The desire of our Lord is for all people to be saved, for all to come to a knowledge of the truth, for all people to repent. But Christ simply would not lie to those listening to, the, to Him on that day when He gave that sermon, or certainly to us today. So He wanted them to know that it's a lot easier to be lost and more will be there than it is to be found and fewer will be there. I don't want to get too specific with choosing certain issues in this sermon because the point of this lesson is not to pick on one or two or three issues, but I do want to make just some application or at least see how this plays out, I should say. Think of many of the innovations, as they're called, that are happening in the religious world around us. How many, even within churches of Christ, are now saying that instrumental music is perfectly acceptable in worship? That's one among many examples that we could give, of course. But what's interesting and really tragic is to listen to the arguments, if you want to call them that, of those who are fighting for those changes. They don't appeal to Scripture. Instead, they basically appeal to majority rules. It'll draw more people. Or the way we've been doing it all these years is just turning people off. It's turning people away. Now, now those things might be true to a point, but is that the standard or is Scripture the standard? 
Remember our scripture reading this morning, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul asked a rhetorical question, and I may paraphrase it when he said, basically, am I here to please man or am I here to please God? We are here to please God. Jesus was warning in the Sermon on the Mount against simply going along with the majority, simply following the crowd. The book of Exodus had given the command to not follow a crowd to do evil. If we, we can follow the crowd... And we can be happy throughout life and even maybe have a veneer of religion about what we are doing, but still end up lost for the simple reason that we're following something other than the true and pure Word of God as our primary way of filtering things in this world. Majority rules cannot replace the Word of God. Number four, our conscience alone cannot replace the Word of God. Now, it needs to be said very quickly that our conscience is a God-given gift. We need to be thankful that God has built that within us. How He did that and His creative ability is, is remarkable to us. It is a gift from Him. It's something that we teach our children to make sure that they, they listen to Him. We should do the same as adults. But conscience alone can never be our guide. Remember as Paul was standing before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 23, He opened up his speech, his defense, with these words in Acts 23 and verse 1. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now that sounds really good until we really think about how deep those words really are. Paul was a great Christian. He was the greatest missionary who ever lived. It's not close. He helped and supported more congregations than I can even imagine. And of course, of course we'd say, well, of course his conscience was clear. But that's not how his religious life started, was it? Notice that he did not say, I have lived in good conscience ever ever since I became a Christian in the city of Damascus. That's just not what he said. He said, I have lived before God in all good conscience up to this day. Basically, Basically, through my adult life, you want to paraphrase his words. That included when Paul was arresting Christians and throwing them in prison. It included the time when he consented to the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8. It included getting orders to bind more Christians as he was going to the city of Damascus and seemingly even beyond there. It even included putting Christians to death. How could Paul then say that he had lived in good conscience all throughout this time? Because our conscience is something that is trained and it depends on how we train it. If we train our conscience with the Word of God and with an humble heart, it is a fantastic guide to to have that little voice in our head, as you sometimes say, reminding us of what really is right and what really is wrong. But we also can train our conscience in a negative way so that we no longer feel that pang, that hurting, when we're about to do something sinful or wrong and justify it by simply saying, it didn't make me feel all that bad. Yes, we need to train our conscience. And yes, we need to be thankful for that God-given gift. But the only true training ground for our conscience is still the Word of God. Our conscience alone. And by the way, on your handout, all it says is conscience. If you, if you have a handout, I wish you would add conscience alone. The, the word alone there. Conscience alone cannot be or cannot replace the Word of God. Number five, our feelings, or if you please, our emotions cannot replace the Word of God. We could go to any number of places in the Bible to to prove this to be true. But I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 27, to a place where a literal feeling proved to be incorrect. You recall in Genesis chapter 27, Esau, the uh, older son of Isaac, 
had his blessing taken by trickery by his brother Jacob. You're, you're familiar with that story. And if you are, you remember how Jacob's mother, Rebecca, had him cover his arms and his neck with that animal hair because his skin was smooth while Esau's skin was hairy and Isaac the father could not see well any longer. He didn't know which son was before him. But something just didn't sound right. But the son came near, and the Bible says in Genesis 27 and verse 21, Please come near me, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are my son Esau, or you really are my son Esau, or not. And you remember he did so, and the father, Isaac, was tricked. Here was a time where a literal feeling was not true. If that is true, then how much more true is it that our emotional feelings simply cannot be our soul or our only guide? Again, we need to hasten to say that our emotions are a gift from God. We need to be thankful for the fact that God has created us with a a realm of emotions, from, from anger to sadness to happiness and joy and everything in between. Our feelings, though, are so easily swayed. So many things that cause us this tug on our heartstrings, and we place those things ahead of what God has revealed. Again, not to just pick and choose one particular sin or one particular issue, but just think over the last several years about the movement of homosexuality throughout our, our nation and how often it has appealed strictly to emotion as the only argument. It's all about love. And because I know someone who struggles with that and they really do seem to be in love, then my emotions are tugged and I can no longer say that's wrong. We simply feel a certain way. And that becomes a standard. And again, we can name any number of issues, any number of sins about which that becomes an issue. By the way, it's one reason why we need to be very, very careful about what we take in through the media. And I would suggest, especially through movies and television shows, how often are we swayed by the emotion of the storyline or the emotion of of the characters? And all the while, we're feeding our mind with things that's filled with all sorts of sinful activity, but we're swayed by the emotion of what we are seeing and hearing through the story. Our feelings need to be trained by the standard of truth. We need to weep at the things that will make God weep. We need to be joyful at the things which will make God joyful. And yes, if I may say so, we need to be angry at the things which will make God angry. All of our feelings are a gift from God, but they still need to be trained or placed under the the oversight, if you please, of the Word of God. And number six and finally... Tradition cannot replace the Word of God. Now, tradition by itself, or at least the concept, is not a bad thing. In fact, we're going to use a verse in just a moment from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that shows that tradition is actually a good thing. It's used in a good way. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul said these words, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. And so somebody may say, well, see, right there, tradition is something we should follow. But the key phrase is what follows the word tradition. The tradition you received from us. Paul was an inspired apostle. So even here, he is really using the word tradition as a parallel to inspired teaching from God. Tradition is not a thing that is good or bad necessarily. 
It's what the tradition is that could be good or could be bad. There are certain traditions that are great. They, they help us stay centered and connected. I would suggest to you that simply what we're doing next week, a gospel meeting, is in many ways a tradition. And it is a, a good tradition because we are coming together to consider the Word of God. And so in, in certain ways, traditions can be good. But traditions can also not be good. And sometimes, tradition alone can take precedence over what God has revealed in the pages of Scripture. It is tragic to me how many people will be lost eternally because they could not give up religious tradition even when they were presented with the truth. It was good enough for mom. It was good enough for dad. It was good enough for grandma. It was good enough for grandpa. And so it's good enough for me. My family's been going here for generations. It's just who we are. Those kinds of sentiments and many others we could, we could give are heartbreaking to me because they show that when push comes to shove, family tradition is more important than the revealed Word of God. And I know, I know it is difficult to move away from such things because tradition becomes ingrained within us. But the question all of us need to ask is this, what is truly and eternally important? Is it just tradition and family or is it following what the Lord has said? Now, I doubt that anything I've said tonight in the last several minutes is something that, that you didn't already know. In fact, as I've looked around tonight, I've even seen some nodding along the way. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. The Bible must be primary. The Bible must have that first place. There's nothing there that, that's all that you know, difficult for us to wrap our minds around or to amen or to agree with. We sang songs tonight that, that fit along with that. And I think all of us say, yes, the Bible holds that primary place. But then... Something happens and it's difficult. But then something happens and there is a relationship that I want to protect. Then something happens and following Scripture will make me seem like an outcast or an outsider. You see, it's easy to sit in here and say, well, of course the Bible's primary. And, and you, we could add to the list of six and anything else because the real answer to the question is what can replace God's Word is nothing. That's the real answer to the question. And we can continue on walking out and replace God's Word and continue to say this can't, this can't, and always go, well, of course. But only when I face those situations where it truly is a decision of following God's Word or following, for example, my feelings. Or following God's Word or following a tradition that goes against God's Word, or following God's Word, or following any other things we have mentioned tonight, it is then and only then, when I know and when I show, whether or not the Bible really is, number one, primary in my life. To put it another way, it's then and only then that I know and that I show whether I'm filtering the Bible through the world or as I should be, filtering the world through the Bible. May I remind all of us that none of the six things we have talked about tonight, none of them, will be what judges us on the last day. But my Lord Himself said in John 12 and verse 48 that the words He spoke, these will judge me on the last day. Are conscience and feelings and these other things important? Absolutely they're important. And each of these things has their place in certain settings in life. But what can replace the Word of God 
for the faithful Christian, is absolutely nothing. Nothing. The Bible must always hold the primary position of decision-making and how I look at the world around me. I need to ask tonight, myself as well as each one of us, is that how I'm looking at the world? Can I honestly say that every thought, every word, every attitude, every relationship, every action that I partake in, that I do, is truly filtered through this is what God says for me to think, to say, to do, and to believe. Only then will I know whether or not the Bible really is number one. Is it really primary in your life? Is it really what you're filtering the world through? You see, the Bible is the only thing that will judge us. We just mentioned that, John 12, 48. But it's also the only message that God has given us to, to show us how to make it home. I can't know how to get to heaven on my own. I can make up all sorts of ways. I can make up all kinds of scenarios. But aren't you glad, as we close, aren't you glad that the Bible does not just say, thou shalt and thou shalt nots? Aren't you glad also that the Bible tells us that God came here and paid your price? I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know that if it weren't for this wonderful book that needs to always be the primary thing that I filter the world through. It's not just thou shalt and thou shalt nots. It's a reminder that God loves you enough that He sent His Son to become just like us and that that Son went to the cross when I should have. And it's a reminder that if I will follow those thou shalts and thou shalt nots, that I get to be with Him forever. But only if I remember that this is what will judge me on the last day. Tonight, are you ready? Is the Bible truly the primary in your life? Is it truly how you're filtering the world? Is it truly what guides your steps? Is it truly what you need to obey even now while we stand and sing to encourage you?